Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. In this podcast, we continue our adult faith formation series in the book of Isaiah, I Am Doing a New Thing, led by Mark Gravrock. The discussion in this episode was recorded on February 6th, 2022. Here is Mark with an opening song. Dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant. You are my chosen. You are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. And, and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant, you are my chosen, you are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God, and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. Let's begin in prayer. Faithful God, faithful beyond all of our expectations and dreams, faithful in the face of everything that throws us. Thank you for your promise, for your utter fidelity, for your commitment to us and to this world. Thank you for the gift of this word from your prophet Isaiah. We ask you to be with us now, Lord, and open your word to us and us to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That uh, some of you have been with us online, some of you have not. That has been our theme song so far for this for this course in Second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55. It comes from chapter chapter 41, verses 8 through 10. Uh, Pastor Halley found this this uh, image for me for today. Um, take a look at it. The image Mark is referring to here is Peter Koenig's The Grasshopper. A link to this image is available in the description of this episode. And now, back to the forum discussion. Settle in on it for a moment. See what you see, see what you notice. See how it touches you, how it affects you. What do you notice? I just saw the hands. Just saw the hand. It took me a while to see the hands, too. It's kind of the main feature, and we don't notice. Kind of like life, huh? We don't notice. Well, I was so amazed at the cricket and the the building Mm -hmm. and the wow. It's not in um, scale. It's not in. I was just noticing that today. And so, because it's not scale, I I just wound up focusing on that. And then it took me a while to see the hands. Yeah. So, and the figure in the tower looks like he or she is looking with wonder. Mm. Um, the figure in the tower looks like he or she is looking with wonder. At what? At the at the grasshopper, the cricket, at the wonder of creation. The whole thing. Yeah, at creation. Looks like something new is busting out of something old. It's like something new is busting out of something old. How so? What do you see? Well, the old, the old tower, the old, uh, what do you call those? I mean, the turrets. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's more rigid, and then pull out of the top. Ah, so it's the like old building, the fortress or whatever, the, t- the palace, the towers and minarets, that's the old and it's rigid. And then this, this has come up. I mean, it's, it's from yeah. it because it's founded on it. Okay. Off to the side like a garden. 
the hands, but it's the hands are also within. Well, oh yeah, the big hands, the big, the big body. Now I'm seeing that. So he's got the whole thing in his hands, or she, he, she. But yep. it's it's a lot. The the big thing is wondrous and beyond our imagining, but it's and it's beyond our scope. But it's still personal and embracing. But there's a lot of green. Mm. The color, the greens, that's yes. new life and crickets. And hey, you've got a combination of beyond color. our beyond our capacity, beyond our scope, but also also intimate and available and at hand. And the color of the hands. And the are, color mm-hmm. are wonderful. Yes, a little countercultural thing for us there. Where I think 50 years ago you wouldn't have seen it that color. The hands. The hands, probably not. Unless it were done somewhere else in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I like I see the cross in the center on the top of the dome. The other two on the left and the right, I'm having a hard time discerning, discerning what's on top of the dome. So at first, because they're domes, I thought of the Islamic thing. And mm-hmm. I thought it was a representation of the world religions. A representation of? The major world religions. Oh, okay. At first, but I'm thinking that they're actually all three crosses. Is they are. They finally are. All three crosses are in there. Yeah. And is that a strong right hand? That's It's actually a strong left hand. Oh, it's a strong left hand. Yep. Undergirding. I, you know, I thought about that with this song. And yeah. Everything that we're singing and thinking and we're realizing are preconceived notions. So even that biblical image of God's strong right hand. That's a kind of slap in the face to left-handers. <laughs> so this is this is a left-handed one, and the right hand seems to be more embracing or something. Yeah, almost petting it. Yeah. One hand is holding, and the other is nurturing a new thing. One hand is holding, and the other is nurturing a new thing. That sounds like Isaiah. Okay. It's a wonderful image. I just now noticed the person on the top tower there, too. I haven't seen that one before. I love the image of uh, the cricket or the grasshopper. The grasshopper is an image from Isaiah 40. I don't know whether this is intended to represent that or not be any connection with it. But in Isaiah 40, which begins this whole Isaiah series... Uh, where you've got the announcement that God's coming to deliver, then you've got a whole series of passages of questions about, well, who has done this, or who can do that, or who is up to this, and who is able for that? And somewhere in there, in that second half of chapter 40, God says that God looks down on the earth and it's like grasshoppers, which could be really insulting, except that the whole overtone is one of care and nurture. My people, you are grasshoppers. Chapter 41 calls us worms. You're so little, and you are mine, and I hold you, and you're, you're part of the whole that I hold together. He must be a boy holding worms. Must be a boy holding worms. I've known some girls that hold worms, too, including our two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. She has a new fascination for worms right now. Isaiah 46 says all people are grass. Isaiah 46 all people are grass. All forty verse six. Yes. All people are grass. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a le- there's a leveling in here. Of all of our pomp and all of our glory and all of our fears, likewise, gets all reduced to grass and to something minimal. But here's the God that holds holds it upholds it all. We'll keep the image up there. I have an, I have another song for you before we get into the scripture per se today probably suggested by uh, Pastor Halley's series that she's been doing on on Wednesday evenings and I believe it's a week from this she'll be off this Wednesday but a week from this Wednesday we'll be getting into Julian of Norwich and Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Avila. Yep. Yep. any of you who have studied or read any of uh, Julian of Norwich probably her most famous vision is when God gives her this vision of 
of something small and round in the palm of God's hand. And it's no bigger than a hazelnut. It's the hazelnut image. And she asked God, what in the world is that? What's that, what's that thing in your hand? And the answer is, this is everything. It's the cosmos, it's the earth, it's the whole of creation held there in the palm of God's hand. And then as, as uh, Julian goes on, not sure if it's that same vision or a different one, you get her most famous quote, that all, all, th all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Sin is behovily, starts that. That is, sin, sin has to be. It's part of, part of the way things are. It's necessary, uh, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is that vision. What is this in the palm of my hand? Small and round like a hazelnut. Small and round in the palm of my hand. What, what is this? a hazelnut. This is all in the palm of my hand, all that is made like a hazelnut. Cosmos earth in the palm of my hand, this, this is all. Isaiah 44 and 45, we move into some of the issues of, of um, how, is, how is God's hand, how, is, how are God's hands at work? Um, it's not obvious. It's not, we want to we say it when we see something happening, oh, there's God at work, God's doing that, or God must be involved in that. It's not at all clear. Uh, some of the Part of what's behind all of this is the struggle with the question of why is there evil in the world? Why, why do things go wrong? If God is a good God and God's a loving God and God's all-powerful, why do bad things happen? Why does evil happen? The scriptures, most religions actually, but biblical religion especially, is filled with that question. Sometimes it's more philosophical, wrestling with why do the wicked prosper in some of the songs. The entire book of Job is a protest around that question. Um, things don't seem to work out according to the calculus that we think they ought to follow. And maybe the biggest um, biblical, especially the biggest Christian, um, affront to the whole thing is Jesus on the cross. Just from a human perspective, this innocent, innocent good person doing what he's supposed to be doing, getting framed, getting brought up unjustly for trial, being executed. But it's far more than that, too. Here in Jesus, as our faith shows us, we have, we have our God unjustly suffering the crime of the world, bearing it with us and for us. Things don't work out into, into a neat one, one plus one equals two equation. That's part of what's behind all this. If you go back far enough, the first thing I put there on the page was whose side is, God's on, is God on? Um, if you think of all of the uh, European religions where each side, usually both sides Christian, would 
religions, nations, and as they fought their wars, uh, each side claimed that their, God was on their side, and then they went to battle against each other. God must have been. It's one thing when God has to answer prayers of two sides of a basketball game, both praying. But when it's a war, it's. That's right. What's God going to do with that? Even in the U.S. Even in the U.S., especially in the U.S. Yep. If you go back far enough in the Old Testament, the assumption was that when nations went to war with one another, it was gods that were battling each other. When God takes on Pharaoh and Egypt and breaks this group of people free, it's, it's God, our God, versus the Egyptian gods, and Pharaoh himself was a god. It's a war between gods. Who's going to win? And whenever one side lost, the assumption was your god wasn't strong enough. The other god was stronger. That seems to be the general perception through, through much of the Old Testament. Until you get somebody like Isaiah throwing a monkey wrench into it. And I would ask you to turn, please, to Isaiah chapter 10. This is the older part of the book, Isaiah, from Isaiah of Jerusalem, probably a century and a half before the part we're looking at. Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5. Would somebody read for us, please, just those first two verses? Isaiah 10, 5 and 6. Destruction is certain for Assyria, the whip of my anger. Its military power is a flood in my hand. Assyria will enslave my people, who are a godless nation. It will plunder them, trampling them like dirt beneath its feet. Happy passage. <laughs> I like to ask, is that good news or bad news? I won't even ask it this time. Um, yeah, Assyria. It's actually verses later on that, that actually spell out what, what your version began with, that there will be God's going to deal with them. But to start with, what does God call Assyria? The rod of my anger. Context here is you've got the Assyrian Empire growing in its aggression, pushing further and further toward the west, trying to conquer everything and bring in all the cash and control everybody. And all these little nations like Israel and Judah are scrambling to try to stay out of the, out of the clutches of this monster that keeps coming. And here now is the prophet Isaiah saying, guess what? That Assyrian monster that you see coming, that's the rod of my anger. That's the club in my hand. Is that what you expect God to say to your nation? And then when he goes on to say, against a godless nation, I'm sending him. Who's the godless nation? Ah. I thought we're the ones that had the true God. Well, you're not acting like a, a God-fearing nation. You're the godless nation. I'm bringing this enemy against you. They're the club in my hand. How are you settling with that so far? Happy with this? Not so much? <laughs> Not so much. Now take a look at verse 7. But this is not what he intends, nor does he have this in mind. It is in his heart to destroy, cut off nations, not a few. First of all, we've got to figure out who's, who's he, who's talking to whom here. This is not what who intends. God. God? You can move into the next verse 8 and it might clarify. For he says, aren't my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad, etc.? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols and I've destroyed them, think I can't handle those of Jerusalem and Samaria? This is the empire of emperor of Assyria talking. So here God is saying to Israel, look, there's Assyria. They're the rod in my, they're the club in my hand. They're the tool that I'm using to discipline my people, whether you like that image or not. But then, but that's not what Assyria has in mind. Assyria doesn't know. Assyria hasn't had a little conference with God, and God's saying, hey, would you come over and do a job for me? The emperor of Assyria has no clue of this. The emperor of Assyria doesn't know about Yahweh. 
the emperor of Assyria has altogether different intentions and not just to discipline a people. What's their intent? Destruction. To utterly destroy and conquer and take over. Yeah. Yep. So here you've got two pieces now. You've got God saying, folks, Assyria is actually my tool that I'm using. And then God saying, but Assyria actually has something different in mind. If you have nothing else but that, what picture do you get of any one-to-one -one correspondence between God's intent and any human action, any, any nation? What's happening in Ukraine is, you know, Russia, Ukraine, yeah. China. We've got stuff like that going all over around the world, don't we? We do. So even with something like Ukraine right now, can you look at Ukraine and say, well, God's doing, what God is doing is, what's is what the Ukrainians are doing? Or is God doing what Russia is doing? Or is God doing what the US is doing? It's a mess. <laughs> Whenever there's a spark of something good coming out of something bad, I mean, I just I think about that, you know, yes. natural disaster, for example, you know, that, yeah, that stops at total destruction and therefore we change our environmental practices or, you know, I mean, it's, That's it's right. the spark of, of something good, which we always hope there is, you know. Yep. <laughs> but, I think that's a, that's a helpful, uh, helpful handle on this kind of stuff. And for me, the clearest passage of that is the one in Romans 8 that says, um, in all things, God works for good. In all things, God's, God's at work for good to those who are called according to his purposes, however that passage goes on. It's not saying that God is doing all those things, but in everything, regardless of how heinous and awful God is at work, so that's that spark of, of, of a turn or new life, or that's where, that's where you can most clearly identify what God's up to. Um, but it's, it's messy, it's, it's harder to say, well, God's doing this thing, or God's doing that thing. Remember when the uh, AIDS crisis first hit and we had some religious leaders in our country that were really sure what God was up to? <laughs> yeah? Making these bold proclamations, well, God is punishing America, and particularly because of um, same-sex practices and things like that, and so God is punishing the gays with this horrible disease. Unfortunately, God was a little sloppy about that because it kept spilling over into other people, too. <laughs> but yeah, so who told these religious leaders that that's what God was doing? Who told them that um, this AIDS epidemic was God's hand at work? Well, and the, fun the funny thing about what you just said is there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about the vaccine that came out for the COVID. They're saying the next one that they're going to go, the vaccine is going to go is after the HIV. So it'll be interesting what those religious leaders would say is like, okay, maybe God is doing that, but did we beat God? <laughs> if we are successful with the vaccine. That's right. So if you actually follow that line that this is God's action, then you've got to be suspicious about whether we should be involved in anything that tries to help that. The key word being, if you follow up. I think it just brought out their preconceived prejudices and it gave them an excuse to do what they'd always wanted to do. I think that's such a key piece of that. Whenever you hear someone else making a bold proclamation about what, where, where is God in this picture, or whenever, you find, whenever I find myself doing it, it's worth asking, where did that come from? Where did I come up with that? What kind of preconceived notion am I just playing out through my proclamation now? Yeah. We have a God who is pretty hidden. We have this promise that the hands of God are there, upholding and embracing and at work in, in and through all things. But exactly how is not always clear. So this passage in Isaiah 10, as it goes on, you, here you've got God's intent in making use of Assyrian aggression. Here you have something that's evil to begin with. This empire set out to conquer and dominate peoples. That's not a good thing. 
And God's saying, ah, I'm in that. I'm using that. But what I'm doing and what the emperor of Assyria is doing are not one and the same thing. We're actually on two different pages. And so you get further down to verse 15. This is Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe vaunt itself over the one who wields it? Assyria is the axe saying, hey, what are you doing there swinging me like that? Shall the saw magnify itself against the one who handles it, as if a rod should raise up the one who lifts it, or a staff should lift the one who's not wood? Guess who's in charge here, finally? And then, uh, verse 12. When God has finished what God's doing through Assyria on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, then God will deal with Assyria. There will be a day for them as well. And so this messy process continues to move on, God working through sloppy human historical processes to bring out something good finally. Now, I'd like like to move you, please, to Isaiah 44. Get us up into the... For those of you that haven't been able to be with us until now, these chapters, Isaiah 40 through 55, are dealing with the end of... Just, just before the end of the exile in Babylon. The people have been in exile for perhaps 48 years, something like that. Um, feels like they'll be there forever. They've been there forever, kind of like the pandemic. It just goes on and on and on. And then, But then now God is saying, through this prophet, it's about to end. I'm about to bring you home. I'm about to restore you. And my agent is right there on the horizon. You can see him at work. He's still a ways off but there's my agent. And that's what we're looking at today. Isaiah 44, would someone read for us, please? Verses 24 through 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth, who frustrates the omens of lions, and makes fools of the vineyards, who turns back the wise and makes their knowledge fuller, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the prediction of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. He says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall carry out all my purpose. He says of Jerusalem, It shall be rebuilt, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thank you. The first half of that passage is, is of course, God saying, I'm, I'm in charge of all of this. I'm, I'm above it all. I'm... I'm at work, and I've been predicting through my servants, the prophets. I've been telling you what's coming. The second half of the passage gets down to specifics. What's the promise? What does God say is about to happen? Mm -hmm. Rebuilding the temple. Re-inhabiting Jerusalem rebuilding its ruins. Yeah, so this is all of the going home stuff. We're going to go home, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, resume life back in the land again under God's gracious care. And who's the agent? Cyrus. 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 Cyrus the Persian. So here at the, what's happening in history at this point is that the Babylonian Empire has been in charge for a while, ever since before the Israel went into exile, and now there's a new power that's arise to the east. Some of the passages say to the east, some of the passages say to the north, it's northeast, it's, com- it's coming from both directions. And Cyrus has been, the Persian has been taking over more and more of the former empires and, and gaining power for himself. And Babylon is watching this. It's on the horizon. They're still pretty smug, and they think he'll never get us, but he's coming. So now we have, like back with that, in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, now we have God through a prophet saying, see that guy over there? He's my tool. I've whistled for him. I'm bringing him. He's my doing. 
Is this the first mention of Cyrus' name? Yes, it is. Now, I should mention that more conservative scholarship that look that sees all of the book of Isaiah as spoken through Isaiah of Jerusalem 100, 150 years before would look at this and see all the more amazing that God would predict the guy's name a century and a half in advance. That's possible. God doesn't seem to do that anywhere else in Scripture. This would be a, a one-off if that happened. Um, for me, it's more powerful to see this as being spoken now when this, this character is off on the horizon and everybody's heard about him and knows his name. And now God's saying, see that guy? He's mine. I'm bringing him. And he's, uh, so he's the emperor of Persia. Just for the record, what Cyrus, Cyrus was as... He was as greedy and as acquisitive and desiring to conquer everything as every other conqueror has been before. But he was more enlightened than most of that era. And one of the, he also inherited an empire. Once he conquered Babylon, he inherited an empire that had all these captive peoples that had been exiled. So he inherited their captivities. And he was shrewd enough to figure out, if I let them all go home, still part of my empire, but let them all go home and rebuild and get their temples rebuilt and all of that. How are they going to, how, how will they feel toward me and to my empire? All you have to do is read the Bible and see what it says about Cyrus. They loved him. Once it happened, this is before it happened. Um, so it's, you do get the record in Chronicles of Cyrus, at end of Chronicles and beginning of Ezra, of Cyrus um, giving this edict to um, let the Jews go home and rebuild their life and rebuild their temple and with funds to pro provided for it to happen. Uh, other historical records tell us it wasn't only the Jews. He did it for several different groups. And he was just shrewd. It was a really smart thing to do. So that's Cyrus. In this last verse, verse 28, what does God call Cyrus? My shepherd. What does that do for you? You hear shepherd, what do you think? Sheep. Sheep. Somebody who takes care of a caregiver. Someone who takes care of a caregiver. It is a common biblical image and an image in the Near East that the ideal king is a shepherd king. Whether they actually were once shepherds like David was, or whether it's just a metaphor, that the, the king is to care for all the sheep provide their well-being. So it's a royal image and it's a caring image. It's a, it's a positive one. So he's my shepherd. Now, chapter 45, verse 1. Now what does God call Cyrus? What's that? Anointed one. Anointed one. Any alarm bells going off? What are you hearing? What are you thinking? I've been thinking of Jesus all along. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Cyrus, uh, chapter 45, 1, thus says the Lord to, to God's anointed, to Cyrus. Uh, do you happen to know what anointed is in Hebrew? Or the Hebrew word we've gotten from there? Messiah. 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 And what's the Greek word for it? Christ. Christ. Christos. Both Mashiach, Messiah, and Christos Christ mean anointed one, which was initially a term for the king. So like David would be God's Mashiach, God's anointed one, God's Christos anointed one. They didn't mean Greek back then. But. So now you've got this royal image that's loaded. Thus says the Lord to God's Messiah, Cyrus. You're a Jew in Babylon. How are you thinking and feeling about that? <laughs> a dirty, uncircumcised Persian? I don't know if they were circumcised or not, but... Yeah. Who was the Messiah supposed to be by now? God's anointed. Somebody from the Jewish Yeah, someone from the Jewish nation and from a particular family in the Jewish nation. <clears throat> the house of David. David's house. 
You've had three and a half centuries, before the exile, you've had three and a half centuries of the house of David being God's anointed. So that the, by, the time, uh, by the time the exile happened, the promise of ongoing God's support for this dynasty becomes God's promise that there will be a return of this dynasty. There will be a new David. There will be a new anointed one coming. The Messiah is not from the house of David. He's from the Persian monarchy. I beg your pardon. <laughs> now, just in case you only, we're only guessing about what we, people felt, if you drop down to, in Isaiah 45 to verse 9, I love this passage. It reminds me of the earlier part in chapter 10. Woe to you who strive with your maker, earthen vessels with the potter. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, what are you making? Or, hey, you forgot handles. <laughs> the word clay, talking back to the potter, saying, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> Woe to anyone who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, what are you, what, what are, what, what are you in labor? You're in the process of engendering me and giving birth to me. Do you know what you're doing? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, will you question me about my children? Or command me concerning the work of my hand. I made the earth. I created humankind upon it. Now, verse 13, I have aroused Cyrus. Text just says him, but in context it's clear. In righteousness, and I will make his path straight. He will build my city and set my exiles free. Um, this is pretty clear that this prophet knows exactly what the people are feeling. That's our Messiah? No way. God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. This is my anointed one, my chosen one for this moment in history. And you're not going to talk me out of it or tell me I'm wrong. They ended up loving him, but not at this point. Would someone read for us, please? It's chilling in the beginning of chapter 45. Um, let's get that whole first seven verses. It's pretty crucial. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before, before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break the pieces of the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no other besides me, and there is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I am the Lord to do all these things. Thank you. What are you hearing? What are you noticing? What do you want to raise comments or questions about? I've got some for you, but I'll hear from you first. Again, he's basically said, saying, yeah, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. And, um, a lot of eyes. A lot of eyes. They're not going to change. This is a pretty confident God. <laughs> yep. I have strengthened you, though you have not acknowledged me. I have strengthened you, though. So, even if we don't ask, we are blessed. Yep. Yeah, and the you there is it's singular, and it's referring to Cyrus. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, though you do not acknowledge me. <laughs> Hebrew actually says, though you do not know me. Twice in here, God says to Cyrus, you don't know me. But I've called you. I've surnamed you. I've summoned you for my work. And I will strengthen you, and I will guide you through this whole process. Who told Cyrus that? 
Pardon me? Who would go before Cyrus and actually tell him that? Oh, probably nobody. <laughs> this is, I think this is actually meant for the hearing of us Jews as we're there in exile. Whether it was actually delivered to Cyrus is almost irrelevant. Because it's really not a message for Cyrus, it's a message for us. Does that make sense? That helps me a lot, especially with 45.5. No, 45.4, I call you by name, as it is in 43. Also, I have called you by name, 43. Yeah, so chapter 43, the I have called you by name, is Israel and God's people and us, God's servants. Here, it's, it's Cyrus. And then in the middle of it, right at the very center of the passage, verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I have called you by name. I have called you not for your sake, O brand new emperor, but for my, for my people's sake. Yeah, though you don't, have, you don't have a clue, but that's what I'm up to. Let me move to the last verse of that. When was this written? Uh, this is best guesses is that, that so Cyrus actually conquered Babylon in five I've lost the date I think it's about 530 no it's, it's earlier than that it's middle, middle of 5th century it's middle of the 6th century so this would be I'm guessing this is a couple of years before that when Cyrus is on the horizon and Babylon still thinks not going not to throw us over that's probably when it was that's probably when it was proclaimed, when it was actually written down, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Verse 7. Oh, yeah. Instances in the Old Testament where God gives his spirit to his people to do his big jobs, and then it's not like the indwelling, is my understanding that we have. But this is yeah. an example of that, right? This is different. This, this would be an example of, of that, uh, kind of not, not the more general you, you're getting, you get a promise in these chapters that God's going to pour out the Spirit on all the people, um, but it hasn't happened yet. You do get, you know, way back in, in um, Exodus, you get God putting God's Spirit on Bezalel, the architect, and giving, giving him wisdom and guidance for designing the tabernacle. So you get, some, you get specific actions of, of the Spirit that way. And I, I would see this as one of those. God's saying, I put my Spirit on Cyrus, to do this work, even though he doesn't have a clue. <laughs> but the promise, there's a promise just a chapter or so earlier that um, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all, on all my people. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. I, Yahweh, do all these things. That second line, I make wheel and create woe. The word that's translated wheel here is shalom, wholeness, peace, well-being, and create. I think the translators here pulled a punch back from woe. It's the Hebrew word ra, which means evil. I form light and create darkness. I make shalom and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all of these things. What do you think about this verse? He's definitely in charge. Definitely in charge. Yeah. You're shaking your head, Susan. <laughs> I have been told since this big that God does not cause evil. Yep. And that's scriptural. Yep. I have to grant that the word ra doesn't only mean evil, it can mean trouble, it can mean woe. There's a whole range of possible meanings, but it's a loaded word. It's, it's the ordinary word for evil. Like in the Garden of Good and Evil, Tov and, and Ra, Good and Evil. When you're doing the Old Testament, you have to think about the fact that this is before Jesus and before a lot of what we learn about God from, from Jesus. And so that makes a difference too. How would a verse like this function? If you were there 
still exiles in Babylon, still captive. Cyrus is a ways off yet. And you hear God say these astounding words. What do they do to you? What's the effect of them? I better stay in shape. <laughs> better stay in shape. <laughs> that God is still with us even in, in the midst of the suffering. Yeah. God is still with us in the midst of the suffering. But God caused the suffering. Mm-hmm. Did God cause the suffering? Or no, the God whole... Caused the suffering. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Sure. Which is very disturbing. And we get some more of that f- weird slippage going on. You know, we might talk differently now about saying God allowed it, God opened up the path for it to happen, God permitted it to take place, whatever. Um, this part of this time in Scripture, they're saying it more directly, God did it. And so this whole section of Isaiah, chapter 40, began, uh, comfort, comfort my people. Um, bring good news to my, tell, tell her that her war, tell Jerusalem that her warfare has ended, that she's served her term, and that she has paid double for her sin. Remember that? Why did she pay double for her sin? There's more of that slippage. <laughs> God sent them into exile, but what they have suffered and what they've experienced in exile is double over what they deserved. There's, this is not a one-to-one thing. So this is sloppy. Well, in the midst of that sloppiness, here you have a verse saying, there's finally no other power at work here that I'm contending with. There's no battle going on between the gods. I'm not battling Satan. Satan, whatever Satan is, is a comma. I don't know. I'm in charge. I wonder, too, about the, the timing of this. Um, this is spoken when, um, when Persia is a, Cyrus of Persia is about to conquer. And if you've, if you've been a student of world history at all, you might remember that, Cyrus, that the Persian, Persian monarchy, uh, the Achaemenid monarchy, was um, they worshipped um, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism was their religion that they really pushed through and, and followed. One of the key things about Zoroastrianism is that the world and our, our whole system is locked in an, an internal combat between light and darkness, good and evil. You've got these two powers constantly raged against one another. And so your job as a normal human being is to choose which side you want to be on and pick the right side. Um, in hopes that you will survive through this and, and on into the next world or whatever. Um, but the, but this is, per, the Persian Zoroastrianism is the only world religion I've known of or heard of that's a true dualism, which means you've got two eternal, equal principles at war with one another. And that's what creates our messy world. Well, we've got that light and darkness, good and evil, now here, you know, if, if, if this religion is already becoming known and becoming heard of, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel, shalom, and I create ra, evil. I do it all. What just happened to any notion of locked-in dualism? If I were, if I were uh, having a really hard time and I was blaming this outside source, I would really... there's on my bad days, I would really want my God to maybe be wolf, you know, create wolf for my enemies. And so this would give me, you know, on my bad days, this would, That's this right. would give me some solace. Yeah. That my God could do that to my enemy. Exactly. <laughs> it really is a way of saying, hey, there's nobody, there's nobody going to stop me. There's no other power raged against me, ranged against me that can keep me from doing what I'm about to do. Everything's in my hand. And it leaves us with messy, messy questions. Um, If we think about the pandemic, did God do the coronavirus? Is that God's, well, the virus actually was God's creation. One of God's creatures just doing what's what's supposed to do. Has God sent the, the virus against the world? Has God allowed it? At the very least, we've got God's promise that you are, everything, all of you are in my hand. And regardless of how evil and how awful things are are looking right now, I am in this and I will work through. 
the virus and the pandemic, and I will be at work through it all and lead you to a new place. But it leaves the bristling questions about, so why did you create a virus like that? <laughs> well, it reminds me of the hardened arrow's heart, the hardened yeah. hearts. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> Hard and hard. That was always, is that in the same vein? It's related. It's related. That's kind of a topic all its own. But. Yeah, yeah. I know. But, it's <laughs> but like, yeah. Also, if you believe in free will, mm -hmm. um, it's what we've done about the virus that has caused more trouble than it's been. Yeah. For sure. But can't we harden our hearts on our own without God's <laughs> And actually, if you read the Exodus account, that's how it starts. The first few, Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. Mm. And after a while, the text starts to shift, and God hardens it. And I wonder if that's another one of those, I'm driving this to rock bottom. Mm. Um, but it actually starts with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Yep. Hey, the pandemic reminds me of the years in the wilderness. Question, how long will it last? Yes. How long will it last? Yes. I think all of those biblical resources are vital for us right now. And they're not they're not pretty. They're, the book of Numbers is my I've got a horrible fascination about the book of Numbers. I hate the God that's in there. And I think I need to hear that book. Because it's I think the God that we see in the book of Numbers is the God that we see when we're in our own wildernesses. It's the, it's what we see. Yeah, this is this is all messy stuff and important stuff. Um, it's just about time for us for us to quit. And obviously, we haven't solved everything in here. <laughs> but, but I do want you to hear that message, that powerful message of God, that I am at work in all of this stuff, even though you can't figure it out. You've got no direct prophetic source for you to say, oh, that's God, God's doing that specific piece. We don't have that. We've just got God's promise. And those, those arms that are, hands that are undergirding us and caressing us. Um, let me sing you the last verse of that hazelnut. All shall be well in the palm of my hands. All manner of things shall be well, evil and wrong, in the palm of my hands. All shall be well, fragile, beautiful, and small, fragile, beautiful, and small. All shall be well, like a hazelnut. Amen. Amen. Next week we are um, we're moving into chapters 46 to 48. We've had hints of these other gods along the way and the kind of contest between the gods. It's time to hit those straight on with Bel, Nebo, and the values that enslave us. So if you want to read ahead, Isaiah 46 through 48, especially 46, is where we'll be spending our time. Will we get to 945? I believe so. I believe for I believe on into the future we're here at 945 unless things change again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.